I can't wait to get back to it because I love the writing. I love the editing part of it. To me, that was the real learning experience. And sure, I want people to read my books. I want them to enjoy the books. But I get the most fun out of it doing those critiques, thinking, well, I just wrote a blockbuster and three guys are laughing. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Walter Curran, who just published Bombs Away on to Vietnam, a novel about a young sailor named William Connolly, who is hired as a third mate on a cargo ship carrying munitions to Vietnam and Thailand. The problem is, the crew is just as dangerous as the weapons on board. This book is the third installment of Walter's Young Mariner series, and with it, he has crafted a hard-to-put-down story about the dangers of men and the sea. So welcome to the podcast, Walter. Thank you. Fun to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. And um, as I was doing some, you know, sort of initial kind of homework on, on having you as a guest today, the one thing that I sort of noticed right off the bat is when I compared, you know, the trilogy against your bio, it's sort of... You and William sort of line up a little bit. You were in the Merchant Marines. He's in the Merchant Marines. He went on to these different places, and, and that was your experience. So I, I guess I'm going to make a wild leap and say that <laughs> your character is sort of based on where you were. Well, you can think of it as a mirror image, but more like in a funhouse mirror. We're very distorted. Some are thinner. Some are wider. <clears throat> but the, the answer is yes. I was a maritime grad. I, in fact the geography of the trips on all three ships is exactly what I sailed on those ships. So I've been there and, and done that. And uh, that made it easy in the initial research anyway, though I did have to do a little bit of research. My memory was reasonably good, but not perfect. And, and of course, I talked to a number of my classmates who have also sailed on these similar things and got them to fill in a few blanks. Um, but that was it. And, and as for the name William Conley, I got that brilliant idea by just taking my initials and asking a half a dozen people, uh, find something. I thought WC would make it easier for me to keep track of who the character was as I went <laughs> into this. <clears throat> and so they come up with the name. So that was easy. When you're writing um, about someone who's so much like yourself, there's I, I always worry that, that there's a danger of like backing yourself into a corner where you don't know whether you've, like, his truth is different from your truth, and then you have to decide which one to select. Did you run into that problem at all? Uh, initially, in the first book I did, and then I learned as I went along, but for, for a little background so you keep this in perspective, I was never a writer growing up. Uh, the, uh, when I was a young kid, I liked poetry, but when I grew up, if you admitted you liked poetry, your own friends would beat the hell out of you. So, so you just didn't. Life went on that way. And then in 1997, my wife and I went to Ireland, and I really kind of discovered my heritage and realized I was full of blarney, had no need to kiss the blarney stone. And when I come back, I started to write poems, and I started by writing a poem for each of my siblings. And so I blame them completely for my writing because if they had said, this is terrible, I don't think I ever would have written another thing. But they all liked it. <laughs> so the very first thing I did was actually publish a book of poems, most of which were written on the train running between New Carrollton, Maryland, and Philadelphia. And then 
I wrote the first one, Young Mariner, and then just stuck it in the closet. So right about the time I retired, the end of 2011, maybe slightly before then, I, uh, I decided I think I really need to learn about writing. I've had no real formal training in it, and I've written a lot of business reports and things, but nothing like this. And so I started taking classes with the, uh, the OSHA, the uh, Delaware Institute up there, and, uh, and then I took classes with the uh, Rehoboth Writers Guild, Right, right. And That's I a good group. To, of course, the Eastern Shore Writers Association, the Maryland Writers Association, and I track and I learn. And I found that I loved the classes. But that's also when I realized I didn't know a thing about how to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I literally, after taking classes for about a year, I sat down and started all over. I just want to go back back a little bit. So you're commuting to work at the time when you're working on this poetry? I was. Or- and what, what were you doing? I, well, I worked in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I've always been in the stevedoring industry since I came ashore. We load and unload ships, hire longshoremen. But I was still commuting from um, Crofton, Maryland. Mm. So I'd go to the New Carrollton train station, take the train up. I had a friend who worked in D.C., so he'd drop me off at 5 in the morning, catch the train, and then my wife would pick me up about 7, 7.30 on the way back. Yeah, plenty of time. I, I used to commute into, into and out of New York every now and again for school and there's a if you can get a good seat and you can and you that's a really good opportunity to to sink into your mind and to be quiet you know it's even though there's people moving around and you know the person calling off every station every seven minutes or whatever it is it's still an opportunity to be to be to yourself in a way that is hard to get unless you're taking the time, like, unless you get home and you're like, I'm, I'm going to lock myself in my room and my right, but lock yourself in my room and write. But to, uh, to have that quiet time, I think I would, I would expect that that would have been helpful to you. Well, it, it was. And, and quite frankly, catching the five thirty train in the morning, uh, nobody's awake till they at least reach Wilmington. Right. You get a lot of the Amtrak maintenance workers would ride up from DC, uh, and they wouldn't wake up until two minutes before they hit the station. I found the key was simply don't sit in the dining car. There's too much noise, too much distraction. So I'd, I'd go as far away from the dining car as I could get. Mm. And usually it was not a problem. And as you say, you, you really learn to focus. But the best part of that in the morning, people are loose. They're not on guard. I, I think I got some, I'm terribly prejudiced here, but I think I, I wrote some beautiful poems based on people I saw on the train. Uh, and, and everything under the sun. And, of course, what also inspired me, I wrote two rather lengthy poems right after 9-11 of firemen and police officers going up for all the memorial services. And so how they were going up and then how they were coming back that same night on the train. Oh, wow. It was like night and day, so I literally wrote two different poems about it. Oh, but wow. it, it was just, it's a great place to people watch. Right, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's and there's plenty of characters. The characters just show up. And since you're not talking to so many of them, you can put whatever um, whatever characterizations on them. Like, this is how they look, but what do they make you think? And that is all you. And then you can, you can impose the uh, personality that you've decided on this person, but use this fully formed person to have in your mind when you're writing. And, and that's exactly what I did. I took total strangers. I watched their movements. I, I could hear some of them. I wrote one, a little one, uh, uh, a short one, I should say, about models that were going up to New York. 
and they were very fussy getting ready, but weren't quite ready. And I just I thought it was unique. And it was I did just what you said, though. I says, now, okay, I see them. I have a preconceived idea of what they're going to be doing. But now, what if they were my sister or my daughter? And, and so before I wrote, I, I wrote it, and then I went back and kind of shuffled the deck, and I think I mellowed it a little bit, saying, I can't be so harsh. Yes, they're strangers, but maybe they're not. Right. Right. And I always think it's interesting when people who, I mean, when I started out writing, uh, I was writing poetry, writing poetry, and then when I was in college, I took a class on creative nonfiction and the uh, essay format and short story format absolutely changed everything for me and I haven't written poetry since then um what for you made you move from you know the poetry into into writing a trilogy I I didn't I added it I still write poetry I'm I'm three quarters of the way through another book of poetry and I'm probably three quarters of the way through a book of short stories as well I'm a writing fool at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have plenty of time. I'm retired. I just think it's interesting, like when poet to go from a, from poetry to a novel, because that's definitely using those are stretching entirely different muscles for you. It, it was. There's no question. As I said, though, remember I wrote the first book without knowing what I was doing. Then I went back and rewrote it after at least having learned the basics of how to do it. Sure. And that's when it really hit me. That there's a whole different world. Plus. Most of my poetry was structured and in rhyming poetry, different styles, uh, because that's what I liked. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's almost all freeform. So I've been dabbling in that too and trying it. And there's some I like, some I don't like at all. Um, to me, uh, and again, poetry is all within what you see. It's all very personal to anyone, I think. Oh, I think so. And, and so I prefer rhyming poetry. But I've heard some fantastic uh, freeform poems as well. So, when you made the leap though to start to go back and you you decide I'm gonna I'm gonna dig out, did you dig out the old novel and edit it, or did you start completely fresh and then check in on it every now and again? No, I I used it only because I had it on the computer, and I'm a terrible typist. I've never had anything. You know, I'm a four five finger typist. That's what I do, so it made it easier. So it was super editing, though. I I mean, I changed fifty percent of the book. Mm. Once I did that, then I really got into the editorial process. And as I uh, get into more into the whole Beach Writers Guild, then I met some others. Frank Hawkins was one of them, and we have four guys. We get together and created a critique group, and we got together every two weeks for a couple of hours and politely ripped the hell out of each other, but we were always polite, but very constructive, and it worked very well for all four of us. We all, I think, improved quite a bit as writers because of that. Yeah, Frank's always a big proponent of, you know, when he's been in critique groups, you know, having, you know, other sets of eyes that are people that you trust and people that you respect, being able to take a look at your work and saying, this is where I think it's strong. This is where I think it failed. Did, you know, and, and he's always sort of been a proponent of, of that process. And, and, and he behaved that way in our group. Now he did. You know, he dropped out because he's got five books. He's promoting them. He's spending a lot more time. Sure. And, and the, the remaining um, three are really, are really kind of stagnant right now. We get together, we talk, but none of us are actively writing right now. And so we, we do talk a lot about how to promote, things like that. Mm. Uh, but I can't wait to get back to it because I love the writing. I love the editing part of it. 
to me, that was the real learning experience. And sure, I want people to read my books. I want them to enjoy the books. But I get the most fun out of it doing those critiques, thinking, well, I just wrote a blockbuster and three guys are laughing hilariously. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Not in this particular paragraph. They'll keep you on earth. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting about that is the editing process is where the work happens. Like the writing is just fun. And then when you're going back and you're, and it's, and it's time to say, okay, well, what, let me look at this with fresh eyes. For, for me, one of the things I don't, I don't really participate in critique groups, but one of the things that I'll do is I'll set it aside for like two weeks. And if I pick it up and it looks like someone else wrote it, then I'm ready to kind of approach it with like a fresh mind and say, all right, this is, if it looks like someone else wrote it and it, and I like it, that's always so rarely happens, but that's always a pleasure. It's like, oh, this isn't, this isn't bad at all. <laughs> Let's see if we can make it make sense. But, uh, the editing process is I think where, where a lot of the real work gets done because it's tying down that creative urge to just say whatever's on your mind and kind of focus it to, to kind of drive the story. I, I, I completely agree with that though. I can't do that. I can't set it aside. I, I, and I don't know how many other writers this applies to, but when I'm reading something, it's so hard to pick up my own errors because it's in my head. And so what I've taught myself to do when I really want to do it, I read it aloud. That slows me down. That then has the same effect Rings your as bell, yeah. you stepping back a couple of weeks. Hmm. But I, I could be gone a month, but if I'm picking up and just reading it, I'm not really reading the words. I'm just seeing what's You're remembering what you wrote. It doesn't yeah, and I think work. sometimes when you read it out loud, you find places where you've sort of accidentally put you know alliteration in something and you're like yeah i'm trying to be very serious and i don't need you know the uh, this alliteration to jump in right. and make it sound silly so i think reading aloud is definitely something that um i wish more writers would do and then i think that because i think it does help you refine the language as you move forward. and find yeah i totally did not put a word in here that was supposed to go in you know and, and i've heard so many writers complain about the editing but I like it. I mean, I really find it instructional, and I enjoy learning things. I always have. I've been a curious guy all my life, sometimes to my detriment, mm -hmm. but I like to learn things, and that's when I learn the most, is when other people are very politely ripping it to shreds. Mm. The, uh, we, I have to say this. When we first got together, we were feeling each other out because it's four different personalities, and then we realized we, we really kind of clicked together. But one of the writers, and I'm not going to name a name, he came we in know and was, it was writing. We know it was We Frank. think it was a really, no, it wasn't <laughs> that one. But he, uh, he was writing a, a, what I thought was a, a very good romantic style novel with some science fiction in it. And he showed up one day and he had a sex scene in there. It was rather blatant and raw. And we all just looked at him and says, what's that crap? <laughs> well, he says, I just, you know, there, there's ladies involved here and a guy and he, he, you know, maybe he needs to have a sex scene in here. I says, well, not for anything, but that's like barging through a door with a tank and saying, I'm here. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. And, and so he ended up literally just throwing the whole thing out. He says, you're right. And later he wrote a, a much softer, more sensual, a romantic scene. And yes, it had some sex in it. But the point was, it fit the tone of what he was writing. Right. Not just dropping a brick onto something and right. saying, did you enjoy that? You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and and that's the thing um i guess i guess one of the one of the real upsides of the critique group is having someone uh having voices to kind of rein you in like having a uh, a voice in the a voice in the room to say no this is you know this doesn't make sense one of the things we talk about a lot is that uh it always bothers me when a writer is like well you just don't get it and I'm like well I'm the reader like it's my it's it's your job to make me get if I'm not getting it that's not on me you know I mean unless I pick up a book in Spanish I can't complain that you wrote in Spanish and I don't read Spanish but if I pick up a book in English and I don't get it that's on you I, I completely agree with that and, and the, the other thing with critique group is it has to be balanced, not in terms of personalities. You really want four completely different personalities, four completely different points of view. Uh, Frank uh, was well into governmental affairs, affairs and, and the Washington scene. Frank's a liberal. Uh, Jackson Copley, the other guy, he's a liberal, and he was a computer uh, techie. I'm not by any stretch. I'm a conservative, but I'm a fiscal conservative. Uh, social, I don't care what people do in their lives. You know, it doesn't bother me at all. But I'm a fiscal conservative. I don't believe in wasting money. Bill Kennedy, the other guy, is uh, probably a lot more like me. So he had two liberals and two uh, conservatives. But it was a good balancing act. But we also came from totally different backgrounds. So Frank was really good on structure, because he'd been doing that for a lot longer than the rest of us, and was helpful there. Uh, Jackson was uh, more of a computer geek kind of guy, and would very helpful on that, and he had traveled a lot too. Uh, Bill Kennedy's background was pharmaceuticals. He, oh, okay. he still is, he's an expert, he's on a number of boards of pharmaceutical companies, as an advisor only, not, not sitting on the board all the time. I'm the cowboy, grew up in South Boston, and shipped around the world. We each had our field and specialties. When the other guy tried to delve into it, we say no. Uh, and, and mostly anything that comes in where police were involved or things like that, the military, I had a much, uh, though Bill was in the military too, he was in the army. But I, I got a, a bit of broader uh, brush to paint with than they do. Sure. Yeah, and I, th I think it's the partnership. Right. I mean, I feel like Tony and I, you know, I, I'm not a huge a fan of a critique group i've always found like a mentorship is sort of a better fit for me personally um but i know tony and i have kind of not you know critique group but just the two of us i mean we we share work back and forth and you know tony will be, the the thing tony tells me serve the narrative where does the serve the narrative if i hear that once i like i hear it in my sleep i hear tony telling me like when i go to sit down and, and work i hear tony's voice and you know serve the narrative and i think that's the point of whether it's a critique group or whether it's a, a mentorship or just a partnership like what yeah. tony and i have it's you have to be able to trust and respect the advice that you're getting ready to be given as well as what you're going to give. But I think that, you know, it, it really is about establishing, you know, uh, sort of those terms and, and limits and things like that. When you uh, decided to keep going with uh, writing novels, how did you decide to stay with it? Did, was it a conscious choice to stay with the same character or... Was it like, oh, well, I'm, I've got more to say about this character? Like, how did you decide to stay all the way through? Yeah, because this is a trilogy. I mean, we, you didn't sort of just do a one-off. I mean, you, you sat down and said, yep, this is a trilogy. Uh, not initially. No, I didn't. I did it at the end of the first book. And that was a conscious decision because the four of us were discussing how do you promote books? We've all been writing. Frank has written the most. But we really were neophytes of promoting. And so it was a learning curve. And... 
I think it may have been Frank, I'm not really sure, but he said, well, you know, the word is now you really should do serials because the second book will get people reading the first, the third book will get people reading the second and first, that type of thing. And so I said, why not? <laughs> yeah. And that's literally, I mean, I had plenty of background to, to utilize, that's and right. I said, why not? And so that's where the second one, Onto Africa, came in. There are three distinctly different books, though. Right. The, the, the first one, Young Mariner, is, is literally a coming of age. Green kid, hot shot from the city, thinks he knows everything, you know. Used to be a street punk, but he grew up. And, and finds out he really doesn't. He's in a different world now. Now he's out with the men, and he's got to stop being a boy. And the second one, he's learned some harsh lessons on the first trip, but now he's going to Africa, and, and now they have passengers on the ship, on the onto Africa one. And there's some women passengers, including the captain's wife. And that just complicates the hell out of everything on the ship. Plus, he falls in love with the daughter of one of the passengers who are heading back to South Africa. So that's much more romantic, mm -hmm. that type of thing. And then this third one is not that at all. The third one is simply the harsh reality of sailing in the late 60s, especially to uh, Vietnam and, and uh, Thailand and that area, because um, they needed crews, uh, crews were hard to find, and there was a lot of drunks and drug addicts out there that were on the ships, and it was a nightmare at times. So it, it really is still a coming of age, but he's learning some really hard lessons now. And so what do you feel like is going to go on next? Do you, do you have any... In you said you were already working on uh, another book of poetry, and do you have a target date for that? And do you have another novel maybe rattling around in there? Or? I, I don't have a target date for the poetry because it's it's a touchy-feely thing. Mm. It, it's I've just been writing them and collecting them, sifting through what I think should be in a, in a book. And it won't be, I mean, maybe 50 pages tops for, that for poetry. That's probably a lot. And I am also putting a bunch of short stories together. But again, not a target date. I have this super blockbuster novel that's still going to take me another two or three years. I've been putting it together for two years. And I will liken it, sounding terribly egotistical here, but <laughs> to, to uh, Hawaii or Centennial, because it's going to be about the Jones Act. And I'm going to call I it the Jones Believe it or Boys. not, know what the Jones Act is. How many people have you met who know the Jones Very Act? Very few other than the maritime business. It's going to say I don't. If it's, it's, a, it's to keep, if it's, there's an extra tax you have to pay if you don't use a U.S. ship from port to port. And so, like, if you wanted to send your car to Florida, it's, like, nearly impossible unless you find a cargo ship that's going to Florida because it's, like, $12,000 to put it on a Japanese ship to take it to Florida, but it's $100 to put it on a U.S. ship to take it to Florida. It's let, let me amend that a little bit. It's not really a tax, though. It, it ends up effectively becoming one. But you literally can't move cargo from one American port directly to another one, and that would include Alaska, Hawaii, and all the territories, unless the ship was built in the U.S., crewed by the U.S., and there's U.S. flag registry. It's called a capitage law, and it was done to protect the U.S. merchant marine. Okay. And, and the other thing that people now are becoming aware of, but during World War II— the U.S. Merchant Marine lost more people than any other branch of the service. Really? Because the ships were getting torpedoed by the, the U-boats. It was incredible. 
that literally they lost more than any other single branch of the armed services. I did not know that. And, and, and as I told you off the record, my father was one of those guys. He, he lived through it. He tried his darndest to get me to not ship out. Didn't realize it was, <laughs> it was a lot better by the time I got there. So. There were no U-boats running around when you were... Not, not that no. I know of, anyway. If there were, they were very silent, and they ran deep. And so, I'm sorry, so this Jones Boys is going to be fictionalized, or...? It's fiction, but I've got a lot of background with that. And, and again, the steamship line we ran for five years was part of the Jones Act trade. Hmm. It was the original uh, line called the Navilletas de Puerto Rico, which was a state-owned line by Puerto Rico, a group of investors bought it out, then we bought it out from them. It's just intense. It's, it's uh, half a dozen families, really, have been involved in this maritime. And so it, it can compare to that way to Hawaii, if you will. Right. And yet, our newcomers trying to come into it, you can envision parts of Centennial. And, right. And, and so, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an epic. Okay. It's going to be an epic. Whether it's a good reading epic, only time will tell. <laughs> Frank will let us know. Right. Um, but because of that, I mean, I, it takes a long time to put it together because from my perspective, it's really six books in one. Oh, wow. That I'm putting together. And you, you have to be careful how to do that. And I'm sure before I do it, I'll probably get a lawyer to review this one because there's real people involved. Oh, and, sure. And you want to bring people along slowly because it's also a lot to take in. Oh, sure it is. And and if you bring them along, it, this is why pace matters, right? If you bring them along too fast, they're going to be like, why is he saying that? I don't remember why that's important. And if you bring them along too slowly, they're going to be like, I get it. <laughs> and so finding that sweet spot in the pacing isn't just another critical thing about writing, especially when you're going to write long like that. It's nowhere near to the point where I have to worry about that yet. I'm still literally doing the outlines, making crib sheets and things like that for myself. I started out as a pantser, seat of the pants on the first book, because I, I knew nothing about it. But once I got that, and then I started making notes, because I said, well, I'm going to forget this if I don't write this down. So for the second one, On to Africa, I, I, it was half and half. I did make out a, uh, a format of sorts, a plan for the book, if you will. I literally started with just the geography. It started in New York, went here, 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 here. I mashed up the calendar in that year for it. I got the, went out and researched all the weather patterns to make sure they matched, that kind of stuff. And then I simply started, uh, I created characters. I knew who the, the one guy was going to be, but beyond that, I didn't. Right. And so I started creating characters and wrote them all down. And, and then I did something I didn't be before. I was really just flowing, see the pants before. And I said, well, why don't you make yourself some targets? Why don't you create scenes or topics for scenes? And so I, I just started, okay, uh, so-and-so, he, you know, tripped and hit his head here. So-and-so stubbed his toe here. And I just made about 100 of those to see where they might fit in. And this is all while it's flowing. Mm. And, and as, as both of you know, I'm sure, once you start to write, of course, I just write. I don't even think of editing. I don't do anything. I just write until it stops. And whatever is on that page, afterwards, then I go back and start to make some sense and order out of it. But once it's flowing, you don't want to stop that at all. You just let it go. Yeah, we uh, we I think maybe it was you once told me when I was having a bit of a block, and I was like, "Well, I write something, and then I back it off, and then I write something, and then I, <laughs> and I back it off." And he was like, "You can't edit an empty page, you know. So just leave it there and keep moving." And so every time I I, I don't backspace much anymore. <laughs> 
I, I tell you, one of the things about writing poetry, though, is I don't get mental block, writer's block. Wow. Because I just switch. If I, if I find I'm slowing down on, on the novel, I'll just write a poem. And it just it allows me to just bounce back and forth. It doesn't make any difference if the poem's no good. <laughs> it's a distraction. Right. Just... I feel good about it, and then I'll jump right back into the novel. So there's always something that, that's got my interest, if you will. So I, I think sure. I'm blessed in that respect. Oh, I think I've so. Heard yeah. People talk so much about writer's block, and I thought, oh my God, I don't ever hope I run into that. <laughs> I, I don't believe in writer's block. We've, <laughs> I've covered this in light, so I won't. But, um, anyway, so Stephanie, now is a part of the show where you thank the guest. Oh, well, Walter, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us. Well, thank you. This has been a very enjoyable afternoon. Thank you. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.